From Microsoft New Zealand, I'm Daniel Larson and this is Azure Lunch, a podcast about Microsoft Azure in short digestible chunks where we discuss cloud computing from a Kiwi perspective with architects, engineers and technical specialists from around the world. Azure Lunch is sponsored by Microsoft FastTrack for Azure, a team of engineers and program managers dedicated to helping you to be successful in Azure. Learn more at azure.com slash FastTrack. Daniel Larson and guests are employees of Microsoft and our opinions are our own. It's my pleasure to be talking with Ivan Tolson, uh, Principal Software Engineer. What is your job at Microsoft? What do you do? So I work on what we call the, um, the Cloud Native Steel Thread team. We work on developer tools. We're responsible for Helm, which is the package manager for Kubernetes, um, Draft, Brigade, Duffel, CNAB. Um, and I'm particularly responsible for developing Visual Studio Code extensions to help people work with those various tools and with yep. Kubernetes itself. Good stuff. And so I've got some questions around that. But before we, we actually start the interview proper, I just want to acknowledge that we're here today at Codemania 2019 in Auckland, which is a, a, a conference for developers, which has been going since 2011, I think, or something like that. 2012, I think. Yeah. 2012. There you go. And I just want to... Um, you know, bask in the afterglow of a talk we saw this morning from Heather Miller. Um, Wasn't that a great talk? Wasn't that incredible? I love the way that she showed the strands of thought and the dialogue amongst the, the dialogue between the languages and yes. the research communities and the practice communities. Yes. So the way that the ideas overlapped each other, intertangled amongst themselves, and um, produce and 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 gradually entered the mainstream. We've seen that with languages that are you know, very mainstream now. Mm. Um, and I guess with other things that have come into this language, for instance, the way that C Sharp and Visual Basic gained aspects of functional programming and then asynchronous programming um, over time. Yes. And we're seeing that. I think what Heather is showing us there is that rich um, seam of ideas that those mainstream languages are drawn from. These things don't come in a vacuum. No. They come from 30 years of research and of practice. Exactly right. And I loved the way she laid out that, you know, 30 or 40 year conversation, how the ideas had changed, how things became important as, as history came up, um, you know, as history went on. Yes, I like the example she gave of um, the, uh, I think it was the data community um, in, I think it was Bloom was the example she gave, yeah. sort of gently coughing in the back saying, ah, you forgot about this. <laughs> That's right. Consistency is important. Consistency is important. Yeah. And so the data, uh, the, the data structure she was talking about at the end, um, it was the first time I really had that explained clear to me in terms of there are some structures that work really well in a distributed fashion and some that don't and the idea of taking you know those those structures that that do work um quite well and composing them i felt like you know composing them into into more rich data structures that we can actually use do meaning thing meaningful things with yeah i just thought that was really interesting in terms of you know how how do we actually solve that problem of distributing yeah. data across um, distributed systems and i think it again emphasizes the role in not accepting the kind of one size fits all out of the box stuff you know yeah. as as working programmers we're so used to oh i'll grab a list i'll grab a dictionary i'll grab a set yeah but there are so many different ways of doing those things, and some of them distribute well, some of them are optimized for, say, low performance. You're always making those trade-offs as an engineer. Yeah. Um, and 
I think what Heather, Heather reminded us really usefully that there are those structures that people have for Linda was another example the tuple spaces yeah. Yeah. structures that are actually designed around the idea of distribution rather than the things that we as heads in the heads down programmers sometimes optimize for mm. do we worry about local performance mm. when actually we're losing all that local performance in synchronizing data if we'd use the better distributed data structure would that have served us better so we, in that way, we're trading off those those attributes, those functional requirements for, for other things, aren't we? Usually scale, it is. Yep. Yeah, lo local performance might be traded for distributed performance and, as mm. again, as Heather reminded us, correctness. Mm. Um, because, you know, if I use locally performant data structures, make them blaze, and then write my own sync code, do you think that's going to be correct? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Heavy dragons. <laughs> Exactly. Wow, good stuff. All right. Anyway, so back to our back to our topic, and what I wanted to talk to you about today was, I guess, first of all, to get a sense of your journey so far. I mean, the, when I first met you and I first saw you talk, I think it might have been a link, a talk about link or something like that. That sounds like me, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And was it you know good old TechEds, uh, yep. which was a, which was a great developer conference in its day. Yep. And um, I've, I've always seen you talk about um, languages with passion. I've seen your F-sharp talk. I've seen your asynchronous programming talk. I've seen your, um, your uh, diatribe on, what did they call that thing? I, the iQueryable, where they renamed the iQueryable, remember? Oh, that? in reactive extensions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. iQueryobservable. iQueryobservable. You know, Shocking. Which, <laughs> Shocking. Just still around, isn't it? I mean, that's yeah, it's still around, yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, I've been stalking you in a way um, through those talks <laughs> over the years and, and I've, you've always been really generous with your knowledge and you've always um, taken time to help me to explain, you know, some of those concepts which um, I thank you for and uh, now I'm delighted to see that you're, you know, you are even more active in the open source community and, and, um, and you're contributing um, to lots of different projects. Before I get to that, can you just take us back in time a wee bit so we can get a sense of, of where you've, you know, of how far you've come? How did you first get interested in, in programming languages and, and what led you to, to start publicly talking about them? That's a really good question. I've always been kind of interested in programming languages. I came from a classic, basic background. My first professional job um, was actually as a tech writer, but we were using. Um, it was Turbo Basic and then Visual Basic 1. And I could see there was a world outside it. I was reading uh, what was then Windows SDK documentation in C yeah. and thinking, I wish I could do this in Basic. Wow. Um, and friends were learning C++ at the time. So I was kind of beginning to be exposed to those different things. But as you say, the jump for me, I think, really came with um, with the with the arrival of Link in C sharp, up till then C sharp had been it was kind of an evolution of stuff I knew about object oriented programming. Mm. But Link suddenly brought together this constellation of features that I could see came from from outside that and at what I now know to be functional programming. Mm. At the same time, F sharp was arriving on the scene mm. and seemed like an interesting thing to look at, mm. and that really informed my programming um, by by doing some work with that um, and seeing how it fitted together with Link, it helped me to become a, a different but better C-sharp programmer. 
So what I've found is that languages have always helped me. They've always informed me in different ways. Even when I've not used them, even when I've just been reading about them mm. or using them on side projects, it's been a real education for me. Mm. And I think they've been an integral part of my, my development as a programmer. But as to where it came from, I don't know. I'm just a collector man. <laughs> I love it. I mean, I remember it was would have been the PDC in 2001. Oh, yeah. When um, when .NET was just launching, I think, yeah. um, and they had a a late night session in one of the Birds of the Feather rooms on Project Seven, what which was that? was that was something that came out of Microsoft trying to make .NET. You know, in comparison to Java, the idea was that .NET, the CLR, would be a multi-language runtime from the very beginning. It wouldn't be a VB runtime, wouldn't wow. be a C-sharp runtime, it would be a multi-language runtime. Wow. So they went out to the research community and to other language vendors and said, we'd like you to make seven languages that run on .NET. And so we got Perl for .NET, we got, goodness me, um, so was this, Pascal for .NET, I think. Was, was this post-Hausberg joining Enders Hausberg? Yes, it would have been because um, he was working on J++ um, right, that's right. Long before then, and then um, C sharp. Yeah. Um, the Project Seven stuff was run in parallel with that as part of a sort of proof of concept mm -hmm. for that early .NET stuff. And to me, that you know, like I say I went on to that that late night session. I think the thing that clicked for me was Nigel Perry. Is, I can't. I'm not sure I know his name. I think it was Nigel Perry from the University of Canterbury. Yes. Was demonstrating a little language he developed for .NET called Mondrian. Right. Um, which I now know was a version of Haskell. Oh, right. And he showed, well, and now I'll create an infinite list. Right. You can create infinite yeah. lists? How? This is magic. Amazing. So, again, so many things that just open your eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just in little ways. No, that's really cool. And I'm overrunning, aren't I? Carry no, no, on. no, this is, this, is, <laughs> this is perfect. And, I mean, you know, at that time you were... I guess you were, I mean, you have always been interested in languages, but you're working on tooling, you're working on the Mindscape project um, called Lightspeed, which is an ORM, which, you know. That's right. So that was that was my second job offering in New Zealand, was working on uh, on Mindscape products, mainly Lightspeed, which right. is an ORM. Yes. Um, and yeah, that was, that was my deepest engagement with .NET. That yes. was really getting into some of the internals and working on um, a link provider, working with reflection, working with some of those sort of really gnarly bits yeah. of the, the .NET stack, which was really, really fun. It was yeah. a really engaging experience. Yeah, okay. And so you, you're working at work .NET C Sharp, and yep. then you're practicing other languages, you know, as you say, as side projects or possibly reading about them. Are you then drawing from, from the experiences of working with those languages into your day-to-day -day general purpose language, for want of a better word? 100%. Um, F-sharp transformed the way I write C-sharp yeah. and the way I now, I'm now, now working my, mainly in TypeScript. Right. Um, and again, I, I write TypeScript the way I'd be writing F-sharp. I find yeah. it so much easier to think about, so much easier to organise the way that I reason, and so much safer, which, you know, on a JavaScript foundation, safety is kind of, well, again, witchcraft. Um, Another great Hausberg uh, uh, project there, TypeScript. Yeah, a tremendous success. Mm. And one that, I, again, I've really valued having inherited a JavaScript code base. Right. And bit by bit, um, 
between me and other collaborators, it's been transformed into TypeScript, and I could not be more glad yes. that we have put in that effort. Yeah, absolutely. That would be essential, I think, <laughs> from a JavaScript. Whenever a JavaScript I have to step back to raw JavaScript, I, yeah. I honestly struggle. No, that's um, good. The lack of, even, even if I'm just using it as a documentation, the way TypeScript kind of works, yes. um, just as a sanity checker, yeah. um, it's just having the information there saying, that's what this object looks like. Priceless. Yes, and being able to, you know, I love what is what is it called? The um, you know that it's not just in time; it's real time compilation where you can actually, you know, you can change something very subtle about a line of code and, and instantly hover over the, you know, the var statement and see, you know, what what that's being realised in terms of you know union types and and different types of um, you know sophisticated, more sophisticated types than I'd be used to in C sharp. Seeing those yes. in JavaScript via TypeScript, I find is really cool. Yes, I've. The thing, as you say, things like the the union types, um, the intersection types, allow you to be much more expressive yes. while still being quite concise. Instead of having yes. to create whole new classes or whole new interfaces, you can say, um, "Hey, you know, this, yeah. this thing is a such and such, but it's read only. This thing yeah. is a such and such and a so and so. Yes. This thing has this thing might be a such and such, or it might be a so and so. Mm. You can figure it out in this way. Yes." And I think it allows, you know, JavaScript then, you can be more honest about what JavaScript is actually doing, you know. I mean, we, you know, as a JavaScript developer, I think I've glazed over some of those statements just going, oh, well, you know, shrug your shoulders, it's going to work. But, you, you know, you, you can't really, with authority, unless you do have an amazing, you know, compiler or tooling like that, actually understand what, what that type system is doing under the hood, I think. Um, and I agree, and even at, even at the most basic level of, for example, is this is this a, is this might this thing be null or not? Yeah. Um, in JavaScript, you've got the same problems you have in C sharp, mm. where anything could be undefined. Right. Um, but in TypeScript, you can turn on all the strictness checks, yes. and then if you want something to be undefined, you've got, it's got to be string or undefined. Mm. Undefined is not an automatic member of every type, yeah. and that's now fed back into C sharp into C sharp eight which has taken a more TypeScript-like approach yes. to that kind of checking. In C-sharp 8, those um, nullability, non-nullability annotations are not something that is manifested or checked at the runtime level. Mm. It's something that a static analyzer mm. tries to figure out, mm. but then just gets elided the way that TypeScript elides its annotations when it goes into JavaScript. So I think there's been some lovely synergy there between the languages, some lovely synergy between the way they've been developed mm. and the ideas that have flowed through. Mm. Is there a storm coming as well? I mean, string nullable, string question mark. I mean, did you see that GitHub issue <laughs> um, thread on whether or not that you know we should implement two string with a with a string nullable and, and those sorts of discussions? I just find fascinating. Um, I'm afraid I missed that one. Yeah. But, uh, I can I can imagine the sort of thing um, again and again. I have to go back to my F sharp experience and go null. It's a blight. It's yeah, a blight. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Once I've got rid of it, I don't want it sneaking back in. Yeah. No. Exactly. All right. So let's uh, let's go let's go back a bit now and um, tell me tell me about your role at, at Microsoft and let, let's go there with the with the tools and um, you know the extensions and tools that you're working for. So. Before we, before I ask you this question, I just want to, 
I just want to recall a story that uh, you know, we were talking about earlier today, and that is we were at um, at a TechEd conference, I don't know when it would have been, 2014, I guess, somewhere around that time, and one of the program managers from Microsoft walked, uh, we, were, we were chatting with them, and you'd, you had your blue badge, I wasn't working at Microsoft at that point, and you said that you're working on um, .NET and Linux, and you know, with a nod and the wink and a wink, this program manager said, "Oh well, you know, there's some there's some good news coming for you uh, <laughs> soon." And I was thinking, "Well, what what's this guy on? What's he talking about?" Um, and then a couple of months later, lo and behold, .NET Core is announced. This is you know the you know a, a .NET framework uh, developed cross-platform and an open source. And then you know since then we've seen a whole host of announcements of open source projects um, in that space, including we I've just including I've just come from the Build conference most recently. The highlight of that conference conference on the show floor was the announcement of a, a new terminal uh, for Windows, which is being developed in C++ in the open, which last time I checked had 35,000 stars, you know, on that project. <laughs> wow. I mean, what is going on? You know, I just, I just find, you know, could you have imagined, well, I couldn't have imagined, you know, back then that Microsoft would start open sourcing things like the .NET framework that we now have you know, cross-platform versions of, you know, of, of these tools and of these libraries and things like that. Where does this end? I have no idea <laughs> where it ends. Um, it is a, to use the cliche, it's an amazing journey. Mm. Um, and I think the, the attitude has changed so much now from just a few years ago it was why should we open source this mm. to why should we not yeah. open source this yeah it's almost the the default um, we want to be where developers are and developers are in open source they mm. welcome it um, and we want to be friendly to developers mm. um, we want to build those collaborations um, you know, the team that I work on now, the product I work on now, um, we aim to be community driven, we aim to accept PRs. Um, I probably do about two thirds of the work on the Visual Studio Code extension for Kubernetes, but the other third comes from people sending me PRs, mm. and I love that. Yeah, that's great. And, uh, and other projects that you've worked on, have you, have you, does that trend up, that percentage? Do you find more and more PRs coming from the community or do you find that, it, that it's relatively stable? Again, I can only speak for the team that I'm on. Yes. It varies very much between different projects and different teams. But the explicit goal of the team that I'm on is to launch projects into the community. Right, To okay. give them to the community. Um, okay. So Helm, for example, is now primarily um, run by its community yes. rather than by Microsoft. Right. Draft and Brigade, um, we are still kind of shepherding into that stage, but Brigade has just graduated, uh, sorry, graduated maybe the wrong word, has been adopted into the CNCF family, um, which means that again it's, it's, it's now um, under the aegis of that foundation which is devoted to um, encouraging community participation and fostering community around that product. Yes. Um, and CNAB is, is going to a foundation as well. What's CNAB, sorry? CNAB is Cloud Native Application Bundles, right. which is a open specification um, for 
describing cloud resources, cloud applications that go beyond what is just containers. So for example, something that might contain, say, a Helm chart, a ARM template, and say a Terraform script. Mm. Okay, and can anyone, I mean, so first of all, tell me about the foundations. Is that us, is that Microsoft donating these projects to the community? Is, is, yes. is that my understanding correct? Yes. Can anyone contribute to these projects? Yes. What if they aren't programmers? Are there other ways they can contribute? They can contribute through documentation, they can contribute through bug reports. Right. Um, there are, they can contribute through um, helping publicize the, the tools that they use, yes. which will bring contributors um, and bring attention to the, the project. Yeah. Um, you know, maintainers, other contributors love products that are well public, that are well used, yeah. and they'll be drawn to those. So if you if you love a product, even if you can't contribute to it, talk about it, tell people about it, share right. it, build out that community. Yes. If you are a writer or a designer, you are a precious, precious resource. Right. We are. We have many programmers. We have very few people with communication and design talents. Is that right? Yeah. Very and I guess so. localization. I mean, would you do translation? That's a great thought. Um, so I am not sure what the translation situation is on the the products that my team yes. works on. But again, for broader things, yeah. um, for example, Kubernetes upstream, mm. um, localization is super important. Yes, really, yes. really useful. No, that's right. Um, From the docs through to the actual tools themselves. Through indeed. The, yeah. yeah. For example, web dashboards. Yeah. You, it's great to be able to present those in local languages. That's right. Very, very cool. So getting back to, you know, .NET Core and, you know, as being a famous open source project that I know, in your, in your view, why is it important that that, is, that that does work across multiple platforms and is maintained in open source? From Microsoft's point of view, because we're no longer, it feels to me like we're no longer just a Windows company. We're selling products on, um, on Windows, we're selling them on Linux, we're selling cloud services including Linux, we're selling things on iOS, we're selling things on Android. We want to be everywhere. We want to be everywhere customers are, everywhere developers are. Yes. Um, if we cut ourselves off from those markets, right. then we're not serving our customers, we're not serving our developers. Um, in particular, in the Azure area mm. obviously we're selling um, Windows and Linux infrastructure we're selling we're selling both of those virtual machines and you probably have a better idea than I do of how many of each type we're selling but the number yeah. of Linux machines is has that reached 50% it's, yeah, it's greater than 50% it's great for, there you yeah, go there. so all new VMs today yeah right and in, in my role you know has been involved in customer facing projects and sometimes support you know being a Linux sysop these days is an essential skill for yeah. a Windows oh, sorry for a Microsoft employee which I'll, I find is remarkable I'll bet um, and so we want to enable our you know we want to enable .NET developers to develop to, to, to deploy to that environment we want to make .NET attractive to developers who are coming from that environment if you're already you know if you're a Linux developer um, and you're used to working in, say, C or Go or whatever, maybe take a look at C-sharp or F-sharp. Maybe mm. you'll find something that you like. Mm. If you don't find something you like, you'll still learn something. Yeah. So yeah, I think there's a lot of value to, to both halves of the equation, to both the developers and to Microsoft, in having that cross-platform. 
I agree. And, and what about you personally? What draws? What has drawn you to open source? Oh, the money. <laughs> Let's talk about that then. So you, <laughs> so you're employed. I mean, I'm I'm paid to work on open source. Um, right. I I enjoy the work I do, um, but it's also it's something that I can leave at the office door. Um, I don't feel this is not me scratching an itch. This right. is something that I'm paid to work on, and it's something I enjoy working on. Mm -hmm. um, but again, this is something which you know Microsoft isn't isn't paying our team um, because out of sort of hippie good vibes. No, um, we're there to do a job, and my job is to ship Visual Studio Code extensions. So let's get to the number that then. So you're telling me that you are paid and you're in a full, you're a full-time employee at Microsoft I know and you're you're paid to contribute to open source projects so you know the, uh, you mentioned helm and you mentioned uh, you know kubernetes and the kubernetes extension for vs code uh, and you get to do that during work time is that right that's what I'm, I yes that's your job that's my job yeah and if, so, I, if I don't do it, I lose my job. Yes, and you've be, already been around the reasons, you know, from Microsoft point of view. But I guess you know the more skeptical um, in the audience would say, well, how does Microsoft make money out of that? I guess um, you know we've both witnessed firsthand, you know, Microsoft no problems making money, so that's uh, <laughs> <laughs> obviously doing all right there. And uh, you know, to me, this is clearly a strategy which is, you know, which is coming top down from from some very smart people. Um, and seems to be working out just fine. I think it's come top down and bottom up. Oh, really? I think there's, I think there's been. I think the the top down part is in part a recognition of the successes that Microsoft has had in open sourcing parts of its its stack. For example, yep. I think that was it. ASP.NET was one of the first parts, NBC. first things that Microsoft open sourced. NBC. That's when I thought, you that's know what, the there's something going on here. When, yes. When the, you know, I think I think so Guru was involved. Uh, Guthrie was involved in that decision. Yep. And so I think that if, if memory serves, and memory doesn't always serve, Scott, <laughs> Scott Hanselman was brought on with the mission of helping Microsoft to adopt open source. Right. He helped to shepherd ASP.NET MVC in with Guthrie's approval. Yes. At the time, Satya was, I think, Guthrie's boss. Is yes. Is that right? Yes. Um, so clearly, there was a culture coming up from the the bottom of that um, cloud and enterprise developer um, division kind of um, area, because Microsoft could see where the developers were. They could see what developers wanted. They could see that, for example, things like. Um, N unit or X unit, these open source frameworks for .NET, were getting traction mm. in a way that some of Microsoft's work was not getting. Mm. Um, you know, Microsoft launched um, the MS unit test yep. runner. Did it get the love that N unit and X unit did? No, which is a shame. It was, it was a great test framework. Perfectly good test framework. Exactly. But but what was open source and what was closed source? Well, I think another really good example of that is Service Fabric and, and Kubernetes. Yes, Service Fabric, the amazing orchestrator that, you know, from a public point of view, I want to say this carefully because I've got, a lot of, I've got friends in the Service Fabric team and, and use it, but it's kind of like the, 
I don't know, the, um, the orchestrator that either people don't know about and don't understand or mm. just hasn't been adopted in, in, in such a widespread way as, as Kubernetes. It's not got the, no, it's, it's, it's not achieved the traction and yeah. there's a variety of reasons for that. There's, I guess, the perceived association with Microsoft and yes. the trust issues that go with that. Yes. There's the perceived association with Windows in a primarily Linux yes. community, whether that's correct or not. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, there's the open versus closed source thing. They did open source, but it I think people perceived it as Maybe too late. Too the, late. the war, I think, might have been lost by that point. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, that's interesting. And I was talking to, um, or sorry, I was, I was listening to Brendan Burns talk about the, the difference um, between Service Fabric and Kubernetes and when, when to use one or the other. And I think we're starting to get a really good picture of that sounds like that service fabric is still our, our orchestrator of choice for Windows workloads which is fair enough um, you know Windows support is still coming for Kubernetes and for um, AKS in general so yes. it was good to hear him say that you know yep. being a, a Kubernetes founder uh, and certainly still significant investment internally into service fabric because half of uh, Azure runs on it which is, <laughs> which is good yeah um, excellent so I noticed your contributions to the Kubernetes extension, which is a wonderful extension. I'm sure you have, you know, had your ups and downs um, with that project. But but tell me about, you know, what what would be your favourite feature in that extension, and and what were the, some of the challenges in, in building it? I think my favourite feature in that is probably the relatively simple one of the the tree view because right. it puts so much right there um, visibly to you um, so when I can't remember a cube control command I can at least sort of poke around in the tree view and see what's there yes I don't need to um, to dig out so much I can jump from for example from pod to pod um, checking out behavioral stats or whatever without needing to copy and paste names on the on the command line yes um, and one of the things I really love about it with the the release version is we've released an API for it mm -hmm. so that now people can customize that tree view themselves they can add new nodes to it yes. they can add commands to it um, they can customize the appearance of things to show the for example whether um, say a, a pod is Participating in a service mesh, yes. For example, or services participating in a service mesh, right. So the we've built that that infrastructure, um, which is useful in itself. It's you know it's it, it's it's really a um, a very compelling thing to have right there, sort of in your editing environment. But the fact that now other people can add. Additional capabilities can add customizations for that, can link it up to the tools that you use, whether that's Linkerd or Weavescope or OpenShift or whatever, um, without you having to leave the Kubernetes extension experience, without you having to have a different, completely different window for it. I'm really proud of that and really pleased about that. I'm hoping we'll see some real uptake on that um, so that um, people can get that. Or that 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 um, one-stop shop yes. for seeing what's going on in their cluster. Yes, uh, it's a it's a, a wonderful feature, especially for people who are learning Kubernetes, like myself. Um, you know, who just want to and like me. Don't tell Brenda. <laughs> Excellent. Good to hear. Well, I mean, thank you for your contributions to open source. 
Um, Ivan and, and I really appreciate you taking this time to, uh, to talk through that today and thanks very much for joining me on the Azure Lunch podcast. Always good to catch up with you. Azure Lunch is sponsored by Microsoft FastTrack for Azure, a team of engineers and program managers dedicated to helping you to be successful in Azure. Learn more at azure.com slash fasttrack.